Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Stanley Angerman, the John Monroe Professor of Economics at the University of Rochester, where he's also a professor of history. Stan's most famous work is Time on the Cross, The Economics of American Negro Slavery, which he wrote with Robert Fogel, and it was published in 1974. But he's written widely on a wide variety of topics in economic history. His latest book, Slavery, Emancipation, and Freedom, will be published by the LSU Press in the spring of 2007. Stan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Now, Stan, we were talking the other day, and you mentioned that um, slavery is a very frequent uh, institution in human history. Uh, tell me what you meant by that. Well, we're all familiar with uh, the slavery which had existed in the American South. One of the questions I found uh, curious is, since it's so uh, abhorrent to us, how did people at the time live with knowing they were enslaving other people? So then I started to look around to other parts of the Americas, other parts of Europe, Asia, go back and forward in time. And it turns out that probably some form of slavery is the uh, most ubiquitous of all human institutions. Slavery is discussed in the Bible at various times. Uh, slavery existed in just about every country at every time. Very few peoples in the world had either not been slaves or not enslaved others, sometimes actually both. And uh, that slavery just persisted a very long time after it had ended in the United States. That um, the, uh, slave, the, the UN recognizes the last end of slavery is in the Arabian Peninsula in 1970. Some people argue slavery or something analogous still exists. But the point is an institution uh, of slavery, of people being coerced in terms of labor, coerced in terms of living arrangements, has existed uh, in many societies in many times. And uh, what got me curious then is exactly how these systems operated. Uh, did the controls resemble each other, or were they very different forms? Yeah, I mean, there are obviously different forms. The slavery in the Bible is is usually indentured, what we would call indentured servitude, uh, This, um, which I would distinguish from the... Um, the slavery we more typically think of. Is that a correct distinction? Well, slavery in sort of the Old Testament took two forms. One, if you you had sort of acquired a slave who was Jewish, they would be freed every seventh year. If the the person was non-Jewish, they would uh, be uh, freed only every 50 years. So you do have distinctions about the length of time of the indenture or of the enslavement. But, you know, it seems to me there's sort of three major characteristics of slavery which have to come together. One is that people can be bought and sold. Number two, that basically the status is lifetime or close to it. And that's a distinction you were pointing to. It wasn't a full lifetime, although at that time 50 years was fairly close and also that the slave status was inherited through the mother. The, all three characteristics really are necessary. What about the and, and also I what about the issue of how a slave is, is acquired initially? Most of the slaves were acquired as a result of warfare with military captives and so forth. And so you basically had a choice of uh, 
death or uh, or enslavement. And you know, there were some people who were uh, captured and kidnapped. Uh, sort of small scale warfare. It was also uh, one of the things which we found is that. Uh, even today, but uh, going back much earlier, you have a lot of what is called voluntary slavery. It's voluntary in the sense that people at very low levels of income, uh, who who they or their families are on the verge of starvation and so forth, would actually sell themselves into enslavement to be taken care of by right. their uh, owners. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking of in terms of it, you know, indentured servitude. Is that that's the yeah, I mean, this is a, the initial agreement here is voluntary. The slavery in the American South and most much other slavery is clearly involuntary uh, war captives. But uh, you do have uh, situations where this is the only way you can keep alive. But in the in the more coercive, the more uh, traumatic cases of uh, kidnapping war captives, um, purchase the, the sort of the really despicable uh, stuff. What did you find about how people lived with themselves who who followed that practice, who bought or uh, coerced people into slavery? Well, it's rather amazing, but these people were feeling, number one, that if they didn't purchase a slave, that slave might die, and therefore what they were doing is helping the people survive. Number two, they were providing uh, a living standard for these people who were working, and... uh, it's interesting how people can sort of, in a sense, uh, accept the situation and uh, follow the codes. Now, almost all the religions have a code which says you'd be nice to your slaves. So this was considered to be part of it. If you were cruel, you actually could be punished. But uh, basically, people uh, felt that you know, they're helping people stay alive and uh, that, therefore, they were doing some public good. And the source for these um, insights are, how are you discovering how people uh, rationalize this? Well, it's basically going back to look at the codes of slaves or the uh, legal codes in uh, the Arabic areas, the codes in uh, various parts of the Americas, Europe, and so forth. The codes are always very specific that you uh, don't be harsh. And of course, those are not always uh, oh, very uh, quite quite often not uh, followed. There were also some interesting discussions, which actually was first among the ancient Greeks, uh, Aristotle and others, who were discussing the question of: Okay, you have people, uh, slaves, ready to work. How do you give them incentives? And there was a great deal of concern with the nature of incentives to uh, get people to uh, labor. One of the incentives they felt was very favorable was you promised people at some time they would be given freedom. Uh, others where you would give them different, uh, I mean, the most int- intriguing one, because it's uh, counter to Adam Smith's argument that slavery is inefficient because there's no incentives, was a Greek philosopher, Xenophon, who commented that even though he had to pay or give uh, funds to the slave in kind, uh, what he did was bought different qualities of clothing. And the slave was productive, he got good clothing. If he's not productive, he got bad clothing. So these are all parts of the system. In other words, they were concerned with uh, aspects of how you get people to work, what the incentives were. And these were all part of uh, what they would regard as sort of 
they're being uh, good to slaves and justifying the institution. How credible were those promises to free slaves if they worked hard? Were slaves freed in uh, in general throughout history, or was yeah, it, or was often, it death? <laughs> often you find uh, indiv- individual slaves were freed, or families were basically given codes of manumission. Uh, uh, but this was one has to distinguish uh, here between the individual manumission and granting of freedom. Manumission is is the granting of freedom, right? Yeah. Okay. By the owner. The uh, and a really frontal attack on the system. You don't get attacks on the system of slavery until the uh, late 18th century. Really, that manumission was always accepted, but that was actually part of keeping the system going. And manumission actually turns out, again, looking back over the records, uh, to be a bit tricky because most of the manumissions were not given by the owner, the slave was given the right to purchase himself with money he earned working elsewhere. So it's not uh, quite that bit of goodness because, uh, well, it's good in that he can purchase himself, but he's not being freely granted. The real onslaughts on slavery as a system don't start until the late um, 18th uh, century in which people say slavery should come to end, all slaves should be freed. But manumission goes back to the ancient Bible, goes back to the Greeks. All societies have always provided for some manumissions. One of the major forms of manumissions was if you needed soldiers to fight for you and you used slave soldiers, they would be freed afterwards. But uh, as I say, all of this was never really considered to be an attack on the system. That comes much later. Well, while we're on that subject, the, the South at the end of the Civil War uh, had some strange. Uh, did there was a, a proposal, correct, to put yes. slaves into the Southern Army? Uh, would they were they going to be granted their freedom? I don't remember. They probably would have been, because that was sort of the standard terms. Uh, but uh, you know, they uh, never got around to doing it. But uh, they were willing to discuss the question of how you get a large enough uh, army to. Uh, defend yourself, and I guess you, you you have this trade-off between defense and your ideology, and at that point they were more anxious, or some were more anxious to defend themselves. I'm going to go back to the um, question of of the, ubiquitous, the ubiquitousness of slavery, yeah. its commonness. Um, it's an old institution, um, a grotesque old institution that persisted at least until 1970, according to the UN, and perhaps uh, later. Yeah. How common was it? I mean, most of us, I think, have an image that that the, that the American South was the last gasp of slavery, uh, and there may be you know, pockets here and there, but how common was it after the Civil War between 1865 and 1970, when, when the UN yeah. at least uh, said it was over? Well, within the Americas, uh, slavery existed in... Cuba to 1886, and to Brazil, which had a large number of slaves, until about 1888. So, and in fact, several of the southern planters ended up going to Brazil uh, to try to maintain their rights as slave owners. But it's estimated that in uh, at this time, even though slavery had ended in um, 
Cuba and Brazil finally by 1888, that there were probably still more slaves within Africa and Asia than had ever been existing in the Americas. And where were they and what were they doing? Uh, they were all over um, Africa. They were basically uh, doing what slaves do. In some cases, we grew crops uh, which required intensive labor, they, where the labor is. In other places, uh, they were sort of household servants and so forth. But uh, basically, uh, slavery in Africa goes back before the Americas. Um, and indeed, there's actually two other important slave trades. We all discussed the transatlantic trade, which was the horror of about 12 million people being moved across the Atlantic. And that exists from about uh, 15, 14, 1500 till uh, the late 19th century. There was also a very extensive trade, which over time may have been even more, going to North Africa and the Middle East from uh, Af from Southern Africa. That uh, this trade started about uh, 800, kept going. Uh, it's estimated that the total number was probably as many as in the transatlantic trade. And indeed, uh, one of the major slave revolts of all times occurred of the black uh, slaves from Africa who went to Iraq in uh, the 10th century. So uh, you had that trade, and you also had a fairly extensive trade within Africa of one area to another of trading slaves. And um, it's estimated by some scholars that only about half of the military captives who were enslaved left Africa. They always moved to a different area. But, uh, you know, so you had this rather extensive movement there. China had slavery till 1910, Thailand 1905, Korea 1894. All these areas had slaves, slavery going back a thousand years and uh, being brought up to fairly recent, uh, historically, Recent in, times. in those other societies, was it uh, was slavery protected by the uh, legal system of the state, or was it ever an underground phenomenon in some of those systems? No, it was basically uh, protected. I mean, the state enforced it, and the state helped to maintain. I mean, the state was basically the rich slave owners, so they maintained the system, and um, you find very little in the way of uh, states. Uh, coming out against the system for very long times. The, um, you know, there's an interesting case, which is not slavery, but serfdom in England, which ends after the Black Death in about uh, 1350. What happened there is there was a big labor shortage, of course, about a third of the population died. And the owners of the land, however, broke their cartel. What they started to do was to bid against each other for slaves or for, uh, for serfs, ex-serfs, pay them more, uh, give them more rewards. And the ultimate uh, way to entice, entice labor, they found, was to grant them freedom. So this is a, sort of the one major case where the cartel broke down and the government did not enforce uh, coercion. Most other cases, the government did a great deal to support them. That's very interesting. Let's move to the Adam Smith uh, quote and talk about the um, economic effects of slavery. The, Smith said that slavery was inefficient, 
because uh, presumably because a person working against their will would not be as productive as someone right. who was uh, being rewarded through uh, through wages. Right. And um, that was the common view, I think, uh, for a long, long time. Uh, presumably then, in that view, slavery w- it persisted because of uh, either sadism or the at least, uh, even though it was inefficient, you saved enough money on uh, the wages you didn't have to pay. Right. That would be the argument, correct? Well, Smith used the phrase, the will to domineer. Mm-hmm. Which is, For sadism. That's your sadism. A little more right. elegant, as always. Yeah. Um, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln uh, Smith's major argument was that slaves would have no incentives, uh, and therefore they would not be productive, they would not innovate, and so forth. Uh, my feeling about that is uh, that clearly what uh, Smith had never done is that never see a plantation in operation, never really study how a plantation operated, um, because all the slave owners knew that you had to give slaves incentives. Now, some did it the hard way by whipping, but many used various forms of uh, rewards, um, differential pay, in effect differential payments, to provide incentives to get the slaves to work, that uh, they they knew what the issue was. As I mentioned before, the ancient Greeks, particularly uh, Xenophon, had sort of provided a a scheme which uh, meant that uh, you would reward good work and uh, penalize bad work. Uh, In fact, uh, the ancient uh, the Roman uh, Cicero when he was discussing this problem, commented that you have the same trouble with slave workers you have with free workers. You've got to give them incentives. You've got to get them to work. And it's in that sense that the Smith argument doesn't quite, uh, doesn't follow. It's just not consistent with what all the planters do. And uh, the planters, in their letters, in their uh, newspapers, magazines, and so forth, would often discuss various incentive schemes which they've tried and found successful and so forth. So that part of the uh, Smith argument, uh, the lack of incentives, uh, in general you think it's hard to give incentives, but the slave owners knew that and people had worked on it. When you you mention differential rewards, uh, how frequently in, in the history of slavery are slaves paid cash in addition? When I think of slavery, I think of you know, it's room and board in return for yeah. backbreaking labor. Was there were there additional rewards and incentives used in various times and places? Well, there was quite often uh, days off, uh, payments in cash. Cause remember, all these manumissions which people talk about uh, meant that people had to have had money to purchase themselves, and they did have money. And they did work. They worked overtime. They worked for other people. So it, you know, it wasn't that basically a cash economy, but it was an economy in which some slaves did have money and um, could, could spend it as, as they wished. And did that differ by country or, or no, location? No, there's a fairly strong degree of consistency across countries in what they did with slaves. But certainly the more uh, market-oriented the society, presumably the more you would have financial arrangements the less probably you would have fewer. But, um, you know, even uh, Smith 
himself is not quite consistent on the issue of uh, slavery, uh, uh, of the profitability of slavery on this point. Of course, Smith, writing in 1770, you know, published in 1776, argues that actually the French slavery and French slave owners are more productive than are the British hmm. because the management is superior. That's fine. So he does allow for some distinctions which affect owners and slaves. And uh, I wonder, where, I wonder, wonder what he based that conclusion on. Well, you have to remember around this time, Saint Domingue, the French Haiti, was probably among the wealthiest parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So that was some indication to him, maybe. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about time on the cross. Um, tell me if this is a fair assumption, a fair uh, description. Before the book came out, the traditional view among historians and many economists was that American slavery was an unprofitable and sadistic institution. Slaves were lazy, unproductive, and brutalized by violence, and that your book uh, went and took a, uh, a contrarian approach. Is that a correct summary? More or less. I mean, uh, I'll probably word something a bit differently. <laughs> but, you know, the, the first point uh, we try to establish is that it's quite clear that despite what the Marxists, what the liberals, and what the conservatives, everyone had a vested interest in arguing slavery was unprofitable. Uh, clearly, slavery was very uh, productive, very highly profitable, and in fact was probably at its all-time uh, peak profitability in the 1850s. That, of course, it depended on the foreign demand for cotton, but everybody's uh, profits, no matter what they're doing, depends on what, the, what they're producing, what the demand is. So the first point was that uh, the nature of the system was that it was very productive, uh, very profitable to the owners. And also what we argue is the system was very adaptable. That if you look at slavery in 1800, it's producing cotton. It's not producing cotton. It's producing rice and tobacco. Most of the slaves are on the eastern seaboard. By 1860, cotton accounts for almost all slave labor. That most of the, uh, about half the slaves are now in the states which didn't exist in 1800. And so the whole idea is uh, the system being incapable of adapting and incapable of being productive, just that's not the way the system had operated at the time. The westward movement was not because you had problems. The westward movement was because it was highly productive. And uh, so I should add, just to see how uh, planters in the U.S. in the 1850s may have felt, is exactly the same phenomena is true in Cuba and Brazil, the two remaining slave powers. They're very productive slaves. Brazil is switching from producing sugar to producing coffee. Uh, the Cuba is shifting from producing uh, tobacco to producing uh, sugar. So the point is, wherever you look at this period of time, that this, uh, certainly the prices of slaves are rising, they're at all-time peaks, then clearly somebody is investing heavily in the system. And actually, another test of it which works is um, many of the northerners were lending to the southerners, and they kept going. They kept lending uh, throughout the 1850s, so they obviously expected to get uh, the payment back. So they expected the institution to be profitable. Yeah. 
And actually, we have uh, several market newsletters from slave traders, which are quite interesting, because the, the system was, you know, horrid as it was, it worked in a way which the owners wanted. So you had a specialized business of people trading slaves. And what they did is every couple of weeks issue a newsletter, as we get from our stockbrokers today, which describe uh, what they think will happen, uh, what their expectations are, and so forth. And it's all consistent with this is a beer period of uh, good activity. What this means in terms of the broader issue is that if you expected slavery to end without a civil war, you would have a very, very long wait. That, uh, so it was not moribund. It was not on its last legs. Uh, it wouldn't have. It might have died a natural death, but it wasn't going to happen anytime yeah. soon. Well, the person who gives actually the best economic analysis of this is Abraham Lincoln in his debates with Douglas. Because Lincoln argues, Lincoln had a peculiar policy, uh, anti-slavery policy, is to not let slavery expand into new areas but not to interfere with slavery where it is. And what Lincoln then argues is that uh, this will end slavery. This will bring about the ending of slavery. And uh, Douglas, being a reasonable debater, asks him, well, well how long, uh, what will happen? I mean, what does this do? He says, well, if the slave population keeps growing, if the numbers increase and the land which is used by slaves doesn't, Sooner or later, the prices of slaves will fall. Slaves will be less productive. Uh, Douglas accepts that, and then he says to Lincoln, and how long would that be? And Lincoln's answer, and this is in uh, 1858, is it will take about 100 years to end slavery unless anything happens. Of course, he had argued also that the uh, founding fathers had expected slavery to end in 50 or 60 years, but then the cotton gin came along. Yeah, they they, um, they, duck, they ducked the issue and technology. Uh, yeah. So, but, but the point was, and there's another, quite a number of other people writing in the 1840s and 50s. Very few people are arguing slavery. Uh, you know, as you look back over it, very few people are arguing that slavery is on the way out. What they're arguing, well, they are arguing it's on the way out, but it's going to take a long time. So is there any meaningfulness to the uh, debate over whether what the Civil War was, quote, fought over? Is, does that have any meaningful uh, content, that, that question? It's uh, very tough. I mean, you can argue, on the one hand, that the North wasn't fighting initially to end slavery. Why? Many of the northern states, which had abolished slavery very gradually, should add, uh, many of the northern states did not let blacks go to school, did not let blacks vote. Uh, certain, several of the Midwestern states would not even let blacks relocate within the state. Iowa, in the middle of the Civil War, has a Black Exclusion Act. Clearly, the northern which, attitude which is toward what? blacks is what? not... Uh, it doesn't have... It, it's not taking really the high ground. What's the, well, I'm sorry, what's the Iowa Black Exclusion Act? What was that? In the 1860s, it was to say that blacks could not settle in the state. Uh -huh. Oh, exclusion in that sense. Okay. Yeah. So it's hard, to, it's hard to make the case that the North was fighting a, a crusade of, of, um, of um, freedom there. No, I mean, you had uh, inability to vote in almost just about all the states. Uh, schools which educated a black uh, 
student would be closed in the northern states. You know, in the state of New York, uh, if you were a free black, you could vote as could a white, except a white could vote without paying. A free black had to have property worth at least $200 to vote. So you have a number of very systematic uh, differences in their treatment. So why did the North go to war? Well, one could say that uh, it was a bit of a blunder. The other was Lincoln believed in nationalism and nationality, and uh, that uh, he didn't want to let anyone secede. I mean, it's it, it's hard to be very convincing because, as I say, Lincoln, in the, even during the war, is trying to get blacks to uh, the freed slaves to, uh, to migrate to either Haiti or elsewhere in the Caribbean. He's not very eager to keep them around. Uh, but um, the question of uh, the value of the Union and keeping it together uh, seems to have played a major role. It certainly wasn't a high moral ground. Uh, and the South, do you want to say anything about why the South uh, seceded? Well, the South seceded because uh, the value of slaves in 1860 was equal to about the whole value of the gross national product, about $4 billion. And it's a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were some debates within the South of whether they would maintain slavery longer if they seceded or didn't, but basically their feeling was that independence would uh, do more for them. There was also some talk... Um, Later in the war, among several of the uh, ambassadors and envoys, about a policy which would free all the slaves, but leave the South independent. But that was not acceptable to the North. Hmm. And uh, But the average Southerner did not own slaves. No, only about uh, 25 to 30 percent owned slaves. Most of the slave owners were... Uh, we had some very large plantations. Many of them were quite small. Uh, what you uh, have is a situation, though, that um, people could easily, uh, not easily, but with funds, acquire slaves. This was a sign of upward mobility. And, uh, you know, so the point was they were tied into the system. Any, uh, that number, 25 to 30 percent, was it stable over time, falling, rising? It uh, was decreasing a little bit toward the start of the war. But that poses a bit of a problem in figuring out what's happening, because even though few people may have owned slaves, these people it meant that some people had sold slaves and therefore had more money. Sure. So it's not clear what their portfolios uh, were going to be. But no, the, the South is much easier to explain uh, in the North, once you look at what the North, the way the North had been treating blacks, and uh, the fact that it's hard to make it into a great moral crusade. But it's hard to understand why the South fought so um, fought so well, right? But, they, if most of the if most of the soldiers had no, I mean, I think there's a there's a a, uh, a commonly held mistaken view <clears throat> that that Southerners held slaves; and they were fighting to keep their their property, but most Southern soldiers, Confederate soldiers, did not own slaves, yeah. and they fought uh, with great tenacity. They, I guess, uh, 
they were defending their homes in some dimension, but well, not, no, they could yeah, have laid down their arms and left their homes. The same nationalism home. which pervaded the North pervaded the South. After all, from their point of view, they were an area. They were not poorly treated. See, one of the things about the South, which I think it's often mis- misread, is that most of the Southern uh, population were basically small farmers who owned their own land. And in fact, you have many more landowners in the South among the white population than you have in the Midwest and in the Northeast. So in other words, this was not a group of people who were beaten down by the system, not some of the sometimes the image of sort of rednecks who who have nothing and they suffer. It's a very highly literate group compared to the rest of the world, as almost as literate as basically the North. It's a group in which the amount of income and wealth which they have is fairly uh, uh, substantial by any standard. So uh, their sense is that uh, although people like to present it of how could they fight for the uh, slave owners. They had enough on their own that they were fighting for. Because what was at risk for them? Uh, at risk uh, would be the end I mean, of the if they lost, right, But if they lost the war, they just have their farms, and that would be the end of it, right? Why would they? Well, the question would be whether they could maintain their farms or whether the North, like many other conquering nations, would have gone in and taken it away from them. Yeah, I guess that's always a possibility. Yeah, I mean... Um, you know, part of it, there's also an argument of should the South have expected to have been compensated for slaves? Is that the reason they held on to slaves so long? But that's sort of an interesting story, too, because the U.S. and one or two other countries are among the very few places in which the slave owners were never compensated for the freeing of the slaves. In almost all cases of serfdom and slavery, what you find is that there was compensation being paid to the slave owners, either in cash or continued labor time. So there's also a possibility that one of these things the South was holding out for was the expectation of compensation. But that was a losing venture because the value of slaves was just so high. If, if, if the North tried to purchase the slaves at market prices, the federal budget would have increased about 50 times, which even in those days was pretty substantial. Yeah, that, that seems unrealistic. So we have this tragic situation where the, the the two peaceable ways of ending this repugnant institution, which would be, quote, dying a natural death or bribing uh, slave owners to let their yeah. slaves go free, uh, were not on the horizon. The way the slavery was ended the Civil War, whether it was by design or not, presumably not by design, but right. but as a as a consequence, an unintended consequence of the war. Um, uh, what do we have? Five hundred thousand casualties. Six, is that? Five six hundred thousand. Five six hundred thousand. Actually, Lincoln in um, eighteen in the eighteen in sixty two sent a proposal to Congress, which really wasn't operated on. But what he did was. Uh, as you were suggesting, he compared the cost, the, the, the financial cost of the war, he didn't bring in bodies, with how much it would be to compensate slaves in certain places. And his argument, in effect, was 
that if we uh, compensated the people, that will save the cost of 87 days of warfare. Mm. And that would, you know, so, so he was concerned with whether actually compensation could be paid. And he was concerned because he knew how expensive wars could be. It's very and not just on the financial side, the human side. Yeah, was but much he more brutal. had the budget side. Yeah, so he he was sort of quite interesting uh, in trying, even during the war, to find ways to uh, end this end it. But the, but the thing which is to repeat again is that serfdom ends in the 19th century, slavery ends in the 18th and 19th century. In all cases, except for very few, including the U.S., the compensation is paid to the slave owner or the serf owner. There was no case in which the ex-slaves or the ex-serfs were given anything. Mm, ever. <laughs> ever. Uh-huh. I mean, one of the most horrid stories is um, Haiti. There's a Haitian revolt. They drive out the French. Uh, they take over the island, and they're independent. Then, 20 years later, the Haitians want to start trading with France, because that's the country they have most connections with. And what they do is they ask the France where they can trade. And the French says, well, you have to remember, you sold, stole our property. Mm-hmm. You have to pay compensation. And actually, Haiti did pay compensation to the French. Whether it got to the slave owners, we don't know. But it, it did not go to the slaves. <laughs> it didn't go to the slaves, the no, in none of these cases. I mean, that's sort of, you know, when you read the discussions on uh, payments and so forth now, there they had such a great great belief in property rights that it was obviously if you took somebody's property, you had to pay for it. Yeah, it's a um, a really embarrassing uh, chapter in the history of property rights, which in general produce great... Uh, prosperity and freedom, but yeah. um, here was used. The argument was used as a way to um, degrade and dehumanize people. Yeah, no, I think, uh, as I say, it's not just slave owners. It's in Europe, the serf owners are all. It's the same. The same in Asia. Same Africa. All over, it's the same pattern of uh, no compensation to the freed. I wonder what the damage. Um, the use of slavery is done to, to the idea of property rights and non-human property. Um, surely people had a more revulsion, a moral revulsion to the idea of property and human beings at some point. Right. And um, maybe that weakened our our um, respect for other types of property rights, uh, un- understandably, perhaps. I don't know. It's very depressing. Yeah, well, the debates show up in some peculiar cases uh the baseball union and sports unions use a slave analogy for quite a long time. Movie stars in the old days were bound in the studio system required uh, to work for the studio, would be rented out by the studio, and they always use the slave analogy. It's, uh, funny. it's funny, no one uses the reverse slave analogy in the academic world to describe tenure, but uh, I guess if colleges wanted to complain, there's a certain reverse uh, kind of slavery there. Well, you know, there's some interesting discussions among the contemporary 18th century people on the question of the efficiency of free versus slave labor. I mean, now we all believe, when we started writing, free was always regarded as being more efficient. And Adam Smith, of course, 
made the basic argument of uh, being more efficient because what it does is free labor gives incentives. David Hume had a different argument about why free labor was more uh, effective and had more incentive. He says slaves are too well taken care of. Free workers are at the verge of starvation and have to work. You get much more work from those people than you will from slaves. Hmm. That was not a popular argument for <laughs> <laughs> a popular argument on the free versus slave. But his argument was basically that um, you know uh, it cuts another way in which if you uh, really want incentives. You just got to put people to the verge of starvation, and you had enough of them around. Yeah, knowing that you're going to be hanged uh, in a fortnight concentrates yeah. the mind wonderfully. Uh, it's also interesting, just as an aside, that the argument about incentives of slave versus free also had uh, interesting analogs being made by the nature of the payment to free workers. And this is sort of one of the principal agent problems, where the same people who said that free labor was more efficient than slaves argue that the optimum payment scheme should be peace wages, not time wages. Time wages don't give people enough incentive. Mm -hmm. Peace wages do. So in the same paragraph where they're discussing slave versus free, it's also for free peace work versus uh, time work. Interesting. Uh, let's go back to time on the cross. Okay. Um, so you and Fogel went against this received wisdom and you show that slave owners acting in normal self-interested ways did try to find ways to motivate their slaves right. that they didn't whip them as constantly because that would presumably make them less productive um that viewpoint of slavery as an economic phenomenon uh, as a form of rational self-interest that wasn't uh, received very well by the uh, world at large when the book first came out was it that's true. It's better to argue. Well, you know, actually, people had long argued it was economic motivation. They just didn't know how to, I mean, it's not well, sound facetious, but they didn't know how to run a plantation. Their idea of economic motivation is you whip people and starve them. The, the stick, but you guys talked as much about the carrot. Yeah. The, our argument was that first, they were very concerned with this. They were very concerned with keeping slaves alive. They were very concerned with getting incentives to the slaves. They were fortunate to have a large amount of food around, so they were able to feed uh, people quite well, relatively well by the standards of the time. And that in many ways, the system uh, didn't quite operate the way the harsh plantation mechanism would. I mean, that's also a way uh, to describe an economic uh, system. But what, uh, as we well know, in most cases, most people don't like to hear that um, economic motivation, which has obviously bad parts to it, could also have some offsets which uh, point in a different direction. And, you know, uh, you can say that... Uh, economic motive led to slavery, but then within slavery you have a different type of uh, arrangement that people had argued for. So the greed could temper the the, um, the will to domineer. Yeah, that basically uh, you had the food, so you let the slaves have more food. And though it wasn't in time on the cross, afterwards we started working on the question of uh, human heights and nutrition as a way to sort of 
check out this point. What did you find? Well, we found that uh, the slave, uh, southern slave, was quite a bit taller than the West Indian slave and then the Africans, almost as tall as white Americans, and that basically the indications were that uh, on average over the course of a lifetime that the nutrition provided uh, seemed to be adequate for growth, that the work was not so devastating that it used up all the calories and prohibited people from growing and so forth. Why do you think uh, – I understand why those ideas were um, were unpopular for people with, with differently held views about human beings and motivation. But why do you think it took so long to put that thesis forward in such a way? And now, you know, one of the creative aspects of the book was, was its use of statistics and statistical techniques of, of economics, econometrics, what, what's now called cleometrics. Yes. But um, – you had was that the only thing that led you to that those unusual contrarian uh insights did you have data that other people didn't have or was it just the courage to to look at the data in an honest well, way a little bit of both what well, we based our stuff our findings say on the uh, slave prices uh were to go through uh, bills of sales in the New Orleans slave market which existed the real estate office there for a period of 60 years, and to see what happened to the price of slaves over time. Also, it had information on uh, the age of the slave, the sex of the slave, whether they sold in families or not. So part of it was that people had known about them, but really never fully exploited them and used them for comparisons over time. We also went back for price data to look at... Uh, a lot of the estate inventories, the wills, which again had a lot of price data, information about slaves and so forth. So, I mean, it wasn't that the data itself may have been particularly new or novel. This was really just much uh, broader, much more in-depth study of uh, these various sources that, um, you know, there's a lot of information there, a lot of information on, uh, it's easy to establish slave uh, the profitability of slavery and uh, the expectation of continue by looking at what's happening to prices. We also spent a lot of time looking at a particular aspect of plantation records. Most planters kept, uh, many large planters, I should say most, many kept very detailed records of how much was produced each day, how much, uh, what slaves were doing every day, what the slaves were worth and so forth, what the rations given to the slaves were and so forth. So there's a large amount of information which uh, these plantation records have, which, again, people had used in part, but never quite as systematically. And, uh, you know, it turns out you can figure out how much uh, people were, were fed uh, by their owners. And there was just all various alternative ways to get at a lot of the questions. So it was just really uh, pushing much harder on the basis of existing evidence. What about the use of violence? Uh, that was a very controversial, uh, one of the many controversial yeah. findings of the book. Uh, you're finding that whipping was uh, rare. Uh, is the, could you summarize what, what you actually found, what you based it on, and, and whether that finding is, has held up? I know it was challenged. Yeah, uh, the question about uh, whipping, 
at the time we wrote the book, um, we found only one very detailed listing of whippings by uh, a planter. And the argument we made there was that the amount of whippings was much less than people used to think, assuming people used to think it was a very large number. Uh, there's a lot, you know, one could tidy up the wording on it, but I think as one goes through the slave narratives, uh, one finds uh, discussions of whipping which are uh, consistent. Also, the uh, and this is in the West Indies, but it has some similarity, the British uh, anti-slavery societies were counting whippings which they observed, and they provided information on the number of whippings occurred in the West Indies. Now, the question on the violence then becomes, is a threat of violence, which always existed, uh, as bad as a lot of violence, which occurs? And I guess there's, it depends on what question you're asking. Uh, the threat's always there. And indeed, you know, a lot of debate on slavery and treatment always strikes me a bit askew because basically, given the legal powers that the owners had, <clears throat> uh, zero occurrence is also a shameful episode because if the master has the power to do it, then you could say that that's what slavery is about. So my my sense is I, in general, would go with the uh, conclusion that the people have exaggerated the horror, not the horrors, the horrors are fairly bad, that there has been some, you know, the... Uh, the cinematic version of, of slavery is... Yeah, well, those of us who had it once <clears throat> give a report on the movie Mandingo, know what the pop that, that's my impression of what the popular views are. Yeah, I think that's right. What about the rest of the findings? How do you think they've held up over time? And is there anything, are there any, obviously when you do a work of that magnitude and that scope, there, there mistakes get made inevitably, yeah. things you wish you'd had more time, things you'd wish you'd gone deeper into, found more corroboration. But the general summary of the book that I gave, that that slavery was indeed profitable, that slaves were treated better than people at least had thought, um, how has that held up in the literature? As there, there was an enormous literature in response yeah. to the book, well, obviously. I, I think, from my perspective, of course, yeah. I'm sure Bob will agree with me. Yeah, that's, that, two. Uh, that's two. <laughs> that's two of us, right. <laughs> that uh, what you have is most of the findings we have are uh, points are factually accepted. It's just the interpretations people don't like. In other words, I think there's very little dispute now about the nature of feeding, work routines, and uh, how, uh, whether slaves deliberately starved or not. There's also been limited discussion about the question of whether you had something called deliberate breeding of slaves. The last, uh, one of our critics argues, well, it was breeding because they took good care of the children. Well, that to me wasn't what the issue was. And in terms of the violence, it seems to me there's a difference between the threat of violence, the threat which sometimes occurs, granted, and everyone getting punished every day. I mean, it's there's a difference. And in fact, the funny, the thing which I find most interesting now is, uh, in a sense, we've been outflanked on the right by the left-wing historians. 
I think the findings generally hold and are generally accepted, so people don't talk about them very much. But now the whole literature is how uh, the slave had agency, the slaves were able, in effect, to make their own decisions, and so forth. It's a very different picture of slavery than it was when we started. So even though it's sometimes written as a criticism of us, I never quite understood why. What are they uh, arguing in those in those works? When you, the slaves had more agency or more freedom? Well, the slaves were not destroyed as individuals. Or the slaves were able to function in family units and so forth. That basically, uh, you know, being a bit unfair to these critics, you sometimes forget that they're living on a slave plantation. Uh-huh, yeah. With, but they're trying to – the idea here is uh, – let me see if I understand this as a – non-expert in the field the traditional view uh, going back uh, you know maybe 50 years and before that was that uh, slaves were lazy and and um, and were constantly whipped to try to get them some v- minimal production out of them you come along and argue that actually they were highly productive they weren't treated as badly but slaves worked hard um, had a good work ethic uh, to the extent that they were incentivized and and treated decently relative to free labor although they were of course brutally enslaved but that they were at least productive uh, and this new literature is trying to ennoble this slavery experience in some cultural way is that what's yeah. going on there yeah hmm. it's interesting it, it, it is a quite an interesting tack because it sort of as they say seems to forget that if this were true, as it is true, say, to the extent that it is true, it's basically like the master's sufferance anyhow. I mean, he had all the power. Sure. So to not discuss the master in this arrangement uh, seems to be, uh, to me, misleading. Yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, before we leave this, I was curious. We get, were talking earlier about the Civil War. I wondered if you had any thoughts on this and, or know the literature. It's a literature that, that, again, I know very little about. Post-Civil War um, and post-other uh, wars with such carnage, uh, what was the impact on the American economy of just the death, of the, the, the effects of such an enormous uh, reduction in in manpower, or is it not so enormous? Well, 600,000 is a large number. Seems like uh, it to me. Uh, but what happens is in 1865 the North starts growing very, very rapidly. And in fact, uh, it's almost like uh, Germany and Japan after World War II, very rapid growth. The South actually, curiously, suffers a large, uh, suffers a decline in income, but that's because you've ended slavery and you lose a plantation system. That's a measurement problem. Yeah. Right, because you haven't attributed the gains from people who were treated as property now being yeah, free. And, and to some extent, they may have taken more leisure. They may work less intensely. Yeah. But starting from 65 to about 1890, the South is also growing reasonably rapidly. Although the South has to catch up from uh, its shortfall. So in terms of a major uh, effect... It, it, it seems less dramatic than one would anticipate. Uh, would that be true of Europe after World War One and World War Two? I get the feeling that that the loss of um, so many talented and yeah. wonderful human beings was rather devastating to their economies. Or yeah, I think there was much uh, 
devastation of people. But you also have, in a way, which didn't get quite so much except for Sherman's uh, march, the destruction of property and uh, buildings and so forth. So you have a much greater need to rebuild the capital stocks and so forth in Europe. But that should stimulate the economy. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. I can't even let it sit there with uh, Well, that's sarcasm. what Bastiat would have said. Yes, he would have. And we'll post, put a link to Bastiat's insights, right. as we always do, because it's this, the broken window fallacy remains one of the most it's important fallacies to remember. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now, um, what does happen with most slave societies when slavery ends is you do have periods of decline in measured output because uh, the slaves, the ex-slaves, don't want to work on the conditions they had before, and they can avoid it. And so uh, it's a measured decline taken in the form of leisure or intensity. Gloriously um, good, I would say, that yeah. decline. It's, it's a, a strange thing to me that... that People seem to think that the goal of life is to make uh, GDP as big as possible. Uh, it's, it's not the goal of life. Uh, whoever has the most toys wins uh, is not uh, true. And uh, leisure, and the things we produce with our leisure, the time with our family and time uh, reading and thinking that are not that are called unproductive are, right. are of course productive. Yeah. No, I, I fully agree. I mean, and sort of the discussions of people who want to argue that these ex-slave societies suffered severe declines really overlook what the ex-slaves themselves wanted. My guest today has been Stan Angerman, the John Monroe Professor of Economics at the University of Rochester. Most of our conversation has revolved around slavery. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the series of essays by David Levy and Sandra Pert at the Library of Economics and Liberty about the role of economists in the fight to abolish slavery and why economics is called the dismal science. You can find a link to that series on the webpage for this podcast at econtalk.org. Now for your emails. Jeff of Ann Arbor writes, Toward the end of your interview with Walter Williams, he said, if memory serves, that if knowledge of economics were more widespread, people wouldn't be concerned about trade deficits. Jeff continues, Monetary issues have always confused me. I have no formal background in these things, but it seems to me that if a reasonable balance of payments isn't maintained, a country's banks will not have a sufficient supply of foreign currency to pay for imports. For example, this has happened to Turkey three or four times since the 1920s, with the most recent instance in 1994. Could you please explain how currency exchange works and how a trade deficit can be maintained without a balance of payments crisis? Well, thanks for your letter, Jeff. I agree with Walter that concerns about the trade deficit are usually mistaken. Let me try and give you an idea of why that is. I should mention I'm taping this segment on November the 17th, the day after the passing of Milton Friedman. And one of Milton's profound ideas was the idea of floating exchange rates. Rather than fixing exchange rates, let the markets at the rate at which currencies exchange with one another. And since the early 1970s, that's basically the world we live in. Exchange rates are set in the marketplace though central banks sometimes try and influence what the price is. The concern you raise, the worry about running out of foreign reserves, doesn't exist anymore. With floating exchange rates, you don't have to keep a stock of reserves, and a trade deficit no longer is a sign of an impending crisis. Now, it's a complicated issue and hard to explain in a podcast. I'd encourage you to take a look at Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom, Chapter 4. He lays out the economics of exchange rates and makes the case for floating exchange rates rather than the regime that was in place at the time of fixed exchange rates. 
So let's look at the trade deficit under the current system of floating exchange rates in the United States. Every year since 1976, the value of the goods that the U.S. has imported from the rest of the world is greater than the value of the goods that the world imports from the United States. So we're running a merchandise trade deficit for every year since 1976. And in recent years, the number has been very large. The value of what we import exceeds the value of what we export by hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, in fact, over that time period, from 1976 to 2005, the latest time the data are available, the U.S. has imported $6 trillion worth of goods more than it has exported. Now, how do we manage that? How does the United States convince foreigners to give us more goods than we give them? And the answer is, is that the foreigners do something else with the money they get. They don't just buy goods. They spend it on something other than goods. And one thing they spend it on is services. The U.S. has had a trade surplus in services for every year since 1971. But that surplus is relatively small compared to the uh, deficit in trade in goods. So our deficit in goods and services is still quite substantial. But the main thing that foreigners do with the dollars they earn from selling us stuff is to invest it in the United States. America is a very attractive place to invest relative to other places, and some of the American assets that foreigners buy are U.S. treasuries, uh, basically debt, and that helps finance government spending. But the bulk of foreign investment is purchases of U.S. equity, corporate bonds, and other private assets that help uh, the investment opportunities here in the United States. So America runs an enormous capital surplus. In 2005, that capital surplus was over $700 billion, just about equal to our deficit in goods and services of over $700 billion. America's trade deficit is almost exactly offset in size by America's capital surplus. The only difference between the two is the net flow of currencies between the U.S. and the rest of the world, which is relatively small. So a trade deficit and a capital surplus are exactly the, the same thing. Uh, they both let America consume more than we produce. Now, is that good or bad? Is it sustainable? Well, as long as the amount of American assets that foreigners want to buy exceeds the amount of foreign assets that Americans want to buy, this situation can and will persist. And that depends on the United States remaining an attractive place for people to park money and to take risk. So dollar-denominated assets are very attractive to citizens around the world relative to other assets, and that's what makes the United States attractive. Uh, our currency is relatively stable. Uh, the riskiness of our investments relative, relatively attractive compared to the returns, all relative to other investments. And so we import tons of capital into the United States, lots of investment that's basically good for the United States. It's basically a way that foreigners are investing in our future. We're sharing some of that surplus and, and bounty with uh, investors from around the world. Now, the other worry that people have about trade deficits is that it costs America jobs, uh, that somehow we are being exploited by foreigners because they don't come back and spend the money here that they get from selling us their goods. There's a lot to be said about that, but I want to give a little bit of the intuition. Uh, why would a trade deficit destroy jobs? Now, the argument of these folks, which I think is wrong, but the argument is, is that imports destroy jobs and exports create jobs. This is really a form of mercantilism. And if exports exceeds imp excuse me, if imports exceed exports, that means there has to be net job destruction due to trade. Now, this mechanical approach to job creation ignores the dynamic nature of the job market. 
You can see it if you consider a world where every American wakes up to find a free car in the driveway, a gift from the Japanese auto industry. And in the glove compartment is a note explaining that this gift will be repeated every year. And in some way, this is the ultimate trade deficit. There's a bunch of imports and no exports. All they're doing is destroying the American um, demand for American cars through this gift. And obviously, says the, says the worrier, the, the pessimist, that's going to be bad for American jobs. Well, it will be bad for jobs in the auto industry. But will total employment fall by the number of jobs lost there? A lot of industries are going to expand because people don't have to pay $25,000 for a car anymore. People will be able to buy things they couldn't afford to buy before the gift. So the, de de excuse me, the decrease in the demand for labor in the car industry is going to be offset by an increase in demand for labor in industries outside the car market. More importantly, perhaps, the American standard of living is going to rise in the same way it would if American car makers figured out a cheaper way to make cars. That's a really important point. It's not directly related to this deficit point, but if foreign car makers give us a free car or American car makers give us a free car, the main impact on the United States is exactly the same. Uh, it allows America to use fewer resources making cars and more resources making something else, and it's going to ultimately make us richer. Uh, it doesn't matter whether – and we, that's free cars. That's a little bit of a silly example. But if you think of inexpensive cars, if American car makers figure out some innovation that lowers the price of a car, it really doesn't matter in the overall if that innovation comes from an American company or a Japanese company. The, the biggest impact of that, of that discovery of whatever it is that allows cars to be made more cheaply is to lower the price that consumers pay raise consumer standard of living, allow America to create new goods with the savings that they couldn't have produced otherwise and with the workers who are now available to work on other things. Now, of course, there's going to be a transition. It could be uh, costly in terms of, for workers to find these new jobs. It might take time. Some might find their skills don't apply well to, in these new things that get created. Those are all obviously true. But the, this, this deeper point is, is that if we want to raise our standard of living, any country wants to raise its standard of living, the only way to do it is to find a way to make more stuff with fewer resources. There are two ways to do that. One is to innovate through technological change, figure out a way that to make cars more cheaply. But the second is if someone else finds that out overseas and you trade. That's the second way to, to be more product, effectively more productive. Think about agriculture. Over the last hundred years, as farmers have become more innovative, we get more food at lower prices using fewer workers. That obviously creates wealth, not poverty. In 1900, agriculture employed about 40% of the American workforce. Today, that number is under 2%. Now, obviously, that hasn't resulted in mass unemployment. New jobs have come along to replace the lost farming jobs, and the new jobs pay well because we don't have to pay as much as we once did for food. It's been gloriously good for America that we don't need as many people farming as we once did. Now, would it make any difference if that decrease in farm employment and the lower cost of food had come from foreigners willing to sell us food extremely cheaply rather than the technological changes that made agriculture more efficient over the last century? Both lead to cheaper excuse me, both lead to cheaper food and fewer workers necessary to grow food in the United States. Both increase the standard of living of the average American. Now, so that's the, the claim. The claim is that Trade deficits in and of themselves have no effect on employment 
because new jobs can be created from Americans saving money from not having to make as many things for themselves. Now, is this true? Well, look at the data. Uh, and I, I will put up uh, a PDF file I'll tell you about in a sec that will help you see this if you want to get online and find it. But if you look at the data, imports have surged. The trade deficits ballooned over the last 30 years. Yet employment in America has grown steadily, uh, including, I would uh, I would argue, while total employment is, is unaffected by trade deficits, even manufacturing employment, which some say is, is the real problem, uh, even manufacturing employment is relatively unaffected by the trade deficit. It's overwhelmingly been affected by productivity, that we need fewer and fewer workers to make the stuff that we produce. Manufacturing output is at uh, all-time highs, even though there are absolutely fewer people producing, not just a smaller proportion of the, of the labor force in manufacturing, but they're absolutely the absolute number of manufacturing workers is smaller than it was 45 years ago. It's kind of a stunning, uh, stunning thing. And because of that productivity, fewer and fewer workers uh, can find opportunities in manufacturing. That's a good thing for America. It's not for every single American, but that's basically a good thing. It's a sign of our productivity and our increased standard of living. So um, let me conclude by saying if we took an extreme position to show you the reductio ad absurdum of uh, trade deficits uh, causing uh, decreases in employment, why don't we ban all imports? Well, that would eliminate the trade deficit. We'd be self-sufficient. But the number of jobs in America wouldn't change. We'd just find ourselves trying to make all the cars and all the steel and all the watches that we used to import. Those industries would grow in employment. Others would shrink, though, because there wouldn't be enough workers to go around. And our demand for many goods would fall as cars and steel and watches became more expensive, leaving less money for other things. America would be starkly poorer. Self-sufficiency is the road to poverty. Trade lets us cooperate and allows others to make things for us that we could only make for ourselves at greater expense. If you want to find out more about the economics of the trade deficit, go to econtalk.org in the section for this podcast. You'll find links to an article by Herbert Stein on the balance of payments from the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics that lays out some of the economics of what we've been talking about in this, uh, in this section. It's really a superb essay. And I've also got a link to a PDF file I mentioned a minute ago where I put together some simple charts showing that the trade deficit has had no discernible effect on total employment in the United States over the last, say, 50 years or even manufacturing employment. I want to thank Jeff for his letter. I'd like to hear from you. If you have comments you'd like to me excuse me, if if you have comments you'd like me to read on the air, please email me at mail at econtalk.org. Mail at econtalk.org. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Talk to you on Monday.